make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to my first ever patron AMA episode. A big thanks to everyone who helps support this show. It just wouldn't be possible without you. Polite Conversations is coming up to two years now, and this show has been a pretty wild ride. I never imagined a technophobe like myself would be editing and recording my own podcast content. I mean, I usually stay well away from non-graphic design tech stuff. So it's pretty great to be celebrating two years. A shout out to my magical, amazing audio friend, Dylan Beck, who helps me with sound and production. Without Dylan, this show just would not exist or it would exist in really shitty audio quality. So thank you, Dylan. And to everyone, just thanks for keeping it going, guys, seriously. And for keeping me motivated enough to keep doing this. Sometimes it's really challenging to continue when it feels like you're pointlessly speaking out and it seems like no one's listening or noticing, especially when online discourse is so toxic and the haters are the loudest people out there, especially when you're an ex-Muslim that doesn't fall in line with what your assigned role is, that is clunky, unnuanced Islam bashing. It's the only thing you're valued for, it seems. The edgier and cringier, the better. Legitimizing people's bigotries, that's where the real Patreon jackpot lies. If you keep your head down and keep being that token, you will go far. But that's not a route I've ever been comfortable with. So again, a sincere thanks to those who want to hear me talk about more than just Islam and to those who appreciate a nuanced perspective on Islam, those who do not take the black and white route of totally defending it all the time or thoughtlessly bashing it with increasingly shady figures on increasingly horrendous platforms. This has been a tough road to walk, more of a tightrope really as my focuses have shifted according to alarming alliances and changes in movement atheism which seem more urgent uh, to address, and according to the increasingly anti-immigrant, anti-Muslim political climate in the West, a lot of my former audience that was here just to get that Islam bashing fix has been leaving, disappointed that I didn't turn out to be the right-wing, Rubenesque type of ex-Muslim they'd hoped I'd be, I no longer really feel a connection to the ex-Muslim movement because of where it's headed, who it aligns itself with, and the overall impact of that, which I don't think helps foster a productive conversation around Islam ultimately. Not to mention, my speaking up about right-wingery and movement atheism has been rather unappreciated by people who would prefer to look the other way when the regressiveness is happening on their side of the aisle. Isn't this literally what we in the atheist movement used to criticize the left for? So, on this lonely journey, while I'm grateful to have patrons, I do still need your help, dear listeners, if my voice is one you appreciate. 
There are thousands who listen to the show, but only a tiny, tiny fraction do anything to support or keep this podcast afloat. It takes a lot of time and effort to put these episodes out, along with all the other projects I do, comic strips, deep dive blog posts into shady characters like Jordan Peterson. I'm working on a new kid's book too. If you'd like to see more of this or even just see this continue, please consider supporting my work on Patreon. Every little bit helps. I, as a freelance designer type, end up dedicating a lot of my time to these projects which aren't really helping me pay my bills, and it ends up that I have less time to take on paying projects, so that's not really sustainable in the long term for me. If you can support, even with a small amount, please consider it. It would really help me to continue. But enough of that. My awesome patrons have sent a lot of very interesting questions, and some of them are from a while ago. I apologize. I said I'd do an AMA quite a few months ago, but my schedule got really hectic, and so I wasn't able to get it done till about now. I had a podcast guest suddenly not show up for an interview and then vanished when I tried to reschedule, so I've ended up with some unexpected time on my hands. So let's get to those questions, shall we? I have quite a few to get to, counting the ones from last time and the ones sent via email. Some people sent in a couple of questions, so I will do my best to get to them all, but I apologize in advance if I don't get to yours. I will cover the most relevant and topical ones that I think most people would enjoy hearing the answers to. All right. First question. William Yang asks, what happened to your guest? Um, well, I I don't know, really. Uh, They just, they scheduled with me and uh, I sent reminders and till the night before they were on board. Then they didn't show up when it was time to do the interview and have since stopped responding to my request to reschedule. So I wish I could tell you, but that does happen. Sometimes I guess it's part of the job. So the next question is a general one that I get a lot especially these days, as things are constantly changing and our understanding of terms is shifting and evolving according to changes in the political environment. I keep getting questions about the term Islamophobia, and I've addressed this in the past uh, a lot of times before, but I think that I've started to view it a little differently. Uh, Not entirely, Yes, it's a term that I think ultimately is is quite unhelpful as it provides cover for right-wing Islamic bigots who just want a shield, who just want to prevent any criticism of Islam happening, and they just throw that term out there. And I do believe that the term anti-Muslim bigotry is more precise and effective because it separates really criticism of Islam from bigotry towards Muslims. So I try to use that term. However, I try also not to get too pedantic about it. When I see someone using Islamophobia to mean actual anti-Muslim bigotry, then I'm not going to jump in and be like, oh, but Islamophobia is a bad word and da-da-da. Like, there's a time and a place to do that, but not always. This kind of thing can get really nitpicky and seem like a dick move. Just kind of like the Islam is not a race thing. When you see how many people racialize Muslims, how many bigoted attacks are just on random brown people that may or may not be Muslim. While technically true, Islam is not a race to jump in every moment and every opportunity you get to say Islam is not a race. So criticism of it can't be racist just seems like 
Like you don't know what you're talking about because criticism of Islam can absolutely come from a racist place, from a place of hating brown people, from a place of hating foreigners, from a xenophobic place. It doesn't have to. Of course it doesn't. And people try to shut down many, many valid critiques of it by claiming racism. But to say that it can't be racist is just ignorant, I think. Denial helps no one, and it's earning trust around the motivations of these conversations to do with Islam that will help us have better and more open and freer conversations about Islam on the left. But back to Islamophobia versus anti-Muslim bigotry, let's look at the term Islamophobia, an irrational fear of Islam, right? I used to think that it's perfectly reasonable to dislike or have a distaste for or fear of even, especially myself as an apostate of a hateful, misogynistic, apostate, murdering ideology like Islam. Now, it's not always interpreted in those ways, but it does contain the raw material to be able to be interpreted in those ways. Hateful, misogynistic, murderous, homophobic ways, that is. But keep in mind that such hate and violence is not exclusive to Islam. It just so happens that nowadays more people seem to be practicing Islam literally than they are any of the other religions. So the way I see it now is that the hate and fear-mongering around Islam has gotten to such a level that it has become sort of exceptional and, and just ridiculously over the top. Unlike criticism of any other religion, it's literally gotten to the point where you cannot have a conversation about anything else without someone trying to drag Islam into it. I posted a picture of my Christmas tree and someone tried to, but what about Islam, that? And so I can't help but feel that there is a sort of irrational panic around it, not just bigotry towards Muslims, but around the discussion of Islam. It's like Islam is taking over and Islam is going to destroy Europe and just that, that, that sort of thing. There's hordes of Muslims coming to rape our women in the West. And it just seems hysterical, to be honest. It's very hard to have a reasonable and rational discussion under these conditions where people can say all kinds of ridiculous statements and as long as they're Islam bashing, even otherwise sensible people will accept it. So I don't know, my thoughts are shifting and evolving around that term. And I think ContraPoints was the first person that pointed that out to me on my podcast that, yeah, you know, there is a difference between criticism of Islam and bigotry towards Muslims. And of course, that shouldn't be conflated. But at the same time, there's also a specific irrationality around the discussion of Islam. There's, there's a lot of fear-mongering. So, so yeah, so I did start to think that maybe um, there are ways that it could be applicable, you know, to a sort of Islam panic. So that's why I'm not as rigid about the term Islamophobia anymore, even though I prefer the term anti-Muslim bigotry. And, uh, yeah, hope that's helpful. All right, next question. Thomas Swords asks, What is the best approach for interviewing Jordan B. Peterson? given his truly regressive worldview and quite sinister ideas, but also understanding how sly he is at evading tough questions. How can he be exposed so that those on the left who don't consider him a serious threat wake up to the fact that he is, in reality, a dangerous man? 
Um, Peterson is a is a tough one, especially because he is seemingly mild mannered and uh, on the surface uh, very articulate, and he's mastered the art of hiding just how sinister his views are. Interviewing him is generally not a good idea because he's super skilled at saying sort of benign sounding things, but weaving in some really absurd uh, sexist and uh, dangerous ideas into them. And also he confuses like his interviewers that aren't clinical psychologists because he relies a lot on his professional background as a psychologist and he appeals to that authority sort of to back up his insane claims about women and lobsters and shit. So a layperson interviewer can't challenge him in real time on specifics. If you must, must, must interview him, I think it'd be best only to interview him with a knowledgeable opponent from his own field present to challenge his bullshit, and someone also who at the same time is well-versed in Peterson's views and his tactics. Outside of that situation, I really don't think it's beneficial to give him airtime at all, because it doesn't matter even how poorly or how well the interviewer does. His cult-like following, which is massive, is in denial even when he makes the most outrageous, ridiculous statements, like the recent clip about him talking about about not being sure whether men and women can work together and how, you know, women are hypocrites if they expect not to be sexually harassed in the workplace, but also put makeup on and wear high heels. He can get away with saying shit like that and his fans making excuses for it. Then he can say anything. It doesn't really matter. We're in a post truth era facts don't matter i mean i never thought i'd see the day when christian fundy salafist bullshit would be smuggled into the atheist scene so easily and prominent figures would prop it up but here we are people just want to hear what they want to hear and they're going to double down triple down if an interviewer is excellent his fans will dig in 10 times as hard. Nothing you can do or say or expose will affect his reputation among his fans. So what's the point, right? Larry Yellingman asks, what atheists have you seen go back to religion because of Jordan Peterson? I'm not in tune with the wider community and this has me curious. Well, when I say that Peterson is turning atheists to religion, I, I don't mean like any of the prominent figureheads, even though they are more tolerant of his religious idiocy, which they absolutely shouldn't be. He's just like a regular fundy that they would have laughed out the room just a few years ago. And now they're joining hands with religious conservatives to own the libs. And you see that not just with Peterson. You see like Michael Shermer, you know, praising Dennis Prager for being more open-minded than the left and other bullshit like that. But it, but if you look at my posts, I've, I've written about three posts on uh, Peterson, and I think at least two of them contain examples, just, you know, random examples I've seen from Twitter and people making YouTube videos of turning back to religion. Uh, so yeah, I've included a lot of screenshots. I've included uh, a bunch of screenshots of more prominent figures in the atheist scene praising him and not at all being critical of his absolutely ridiculous ideas. This is a very depressing reality. Anyway, I'll include the links to my posts on him in the show notes, and you can have a look at all the various 
screenshots I've found in my online adventures. Now, to continue the Peterson theme. Someone wrote me an email with a question about feeling very alienated from the left and put off by the wokeness contest, as he put it. Having gone through a divorce and just feeling down lately, he finds himself more and more enticed by characters like Jordan Peterson. His email was fairly long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I will just read some selected quotes. And I will admit, the sometimes open hostility to people in or perceived to be in privileged groups turned me off. White cishet bro here, so I check all the boxes, lol. Honestly, the constant berating, holier-than-thou nature of the rhetoric wore me down and also made me feel like shit, personally. So in response, I got off Twitter, left the left book groups I was on, unsubscribed from all the leftist podcasts I supported on Patreon, but yours, stopped watching leftist YouTube, and took my already low participation in real-life leftist activism to zero. Not only that, but I'll even admit to listening to some Jordan Peterson in the last few months. I know he's an alt-light wolf in sheep's clothing, and I appreciate your recent article on him, but honestly, I feel like shit, and yes, my room is a fucking mess, and I needed him to tell me to clean it. Dating nowadays is miserable, I hold no hopes of getting married again, and I've been totally listless and lost since the divorce. I want to come back to the left, but I'm just fed up with it, and I don't know if my personal sanity can take it. How can we reach out to lost young men like me and stop us from going over to the dark side? Oi, well... Um, firstly, uh, look, I'm very, very sorry that you're going through a shit time. It's not easy to go through something life-changing like a divorce. And dating can be very complicated. It can feel overwhelming. So I get that. And feeling down in the dumps does leave you vulnerable to shitty ideas like Jordan Peterson's. But please understand that the left is not this unique monster that it's often made out to be especially in the skeptosphere. Just try even mildly criticizing a rational skeptic figurehead like Steven Pinker, and you'll see what centrist wokeness contests look like. Or you could make a thoughtful criticism about why a New York Times conservative columnist was wrong about something. Then all you got to do is sit back and wait for all the woke articles to come rolling in. Or better yet, simply try asking a Jordan Peterson fan, why the fuck Jordan Peterson said so-and-so thing and quote the man. There will be dozens of Peterson fans lining up to tell you just how unwoke you are and how they understand better because they have listened to 200 more hours of his lectures than you have. So this is not unique to the left. If you want to talk about open hostility, just take a look at the hostility towards feminists or immigrants or people of color on various parts of the right on the anti-SJW side of things. Look at the hostility towards trans people. Look at the hostility towards the left in general. And the left can suck sometimes. It's true. I mean, in every group, there are people that suck. You're not going to find a perfect space where there will never be friction anywhere on the political spectrum, I think. I mean, I have my disagreements and gripes with the left, too. I've had issues. I don't agree with the left often when it comes to the hijab. So I get what you're saying, but that doesn't change all my values and all my principles and make me shift rightwards. It's simply a point of disagreement that I have with some people on the left. Now, if you're feeling burnt out by activism or just engaging constantly in 
toxic online conversations, that's completely understandable. And you don't have to do that. You don't have to engage in that. You don't have to be an activist to be on the left. So you can disengage from your left book pages and left-leaning podcasts and still be on the left. Give yourself that much-needed break to relax and re-energize. Because otherwise, in that politically burnt-out, down-in-the-dumps kind of phase, you are the perfect target for a charlatan-like Peterson. What he's selling is so comforting. It's not your fault. It's the left's fault. It's the feminist's fault. It's the postmodernist neo-Marxist fault. You know, men have been set up to fail. Those asking for more diversity in the workplace are destroying the meritocracy. There is no systemic discrimination against women, but against men, that's something that Jordan Peterson would like to talk about, certainly. That's something that makes him weep, actually. This simultaneous decrying of victimhood culture on the left while positioning yourself as the world's biggest victim is something that Peterson excels at. He tells you you've been treated unfairly all along, and then he offers some feel-good self-help advice about cleaning your room, pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. It's not really his self-help stuff that is so insidious. It's the things that he weaves in with it. There is a pretty disturbing ideology behind that stuff. And also, there isn't much intellectually there if you really try to unpack his bullshit. It's often Deepak Chopra-esque nonsense. Here's a recent tweet of his. He says, If you try to be good, you might be good and sometimes happy. If you strive to be happy, you are unlikely to be good and you will rarely be happy either. So what I guess I'm trying to say is, You don't need to go in alt-light directions to get basic, inspirational cat poster stuff. Now, I know the left doesn't make it easy. It asks you to look inwards. It asks you to examine privilege. These conversations are uncomfortable. And it may feel like people are blaming you for things that are totally not your fault. But I assure you, a lot of these concerns are resolved by understanding what the conversation around privilege actually is about. It doesn't mean that you don't matter, that your opinion doesn't matter, that your pain and suffering do not matter. I want you to know that, that, you know, you are a valued and important voice. Of course, there are overzealous and bigoted lefties trying to police this at all the wrong times. But as I said earlier, there are shitty people in all groups. Don't let that put you off the entire left and let that change your values. Having some sort of privilege does not make you a villain. And I'm sure there are plenty of leftists that be willing to tell you the same. It's unfortunate that that's not being communicated properly and that's something perhaps the left can work on is to get the message across better. There are people with all sorts of different kinds of privilege. And you can actually embrace that and use it for the good. People with more privilege in society have more sway, have more opportunity to influence change. And remember, there are others privileged in ways that you may not be. Now, as for preventing guys in vulnerable situations like you from heading over to the dark side, as you said, I'm hoping that... Hearing some solidarity, hearing someone tell you that 
your voice matters, hearing that there should not be a strict orthodoxy on the left that you do belong here, even though you may have disagreements at times. I'm hoping that hearing that kind of stuff will help you reconsider and rethink these things. And absolutely, I think on the left, we can do better in putting that message out there. And I thank you for not giving up on my lefty podcast just yet. I hope that can help convince you that the left isn't as irredeemable or rigid as it's made out to be at times. I'll tell you something that works for me personally. If I'm ever too frustrated by the left, I just have to turn my head rightwards and see what awaits me there. And that sort of sorts me out and puts my priorities back in perspective again. And if you need someone to tell you to clean your room and sort yourself out and get your shit in order, I'll do that for you right now. Minus the misogynistic ideology. So, clean your damn room, sort yourself out. You don't need a caveman who's not even sure if men and women can work together, who thinks casual sex could necessitate state tyranny, who thinks women are hypocritical for wearing makeup and expecting not to be harassed at the same time. You're a modern man who isn't threatened by people from more vulnerable groups asking for fairer treatment. You don't need a man like that to tell you to get your shit together. Anytime you think you do, send me a message and I will tell you to get your shit together. There's no good reason for an intelligent, rational person like yourself to go down the Peterson route. Trust me, you won't end up in a better place that way, and certainly, dating-wise, you won't end up in a better place either. It may seem hopeless right now, but it isn't. There are plenty of ways to meet people out there and plenty of potential partners out there, too. So once you're ready, get back out there. Now you won't succeed every time, but eventually you just might. How are you going to know if you don't even try, right? I mean, come on, you have app privilege. (laughs) Something people in the old school dating scene did not have. So your chances are better already. Anyway, hope that was helpful. Take care and keep me posted on how you're doing, all right? Now go clean your room. Okay, next question. Shout out to Martin Mannion. He has been one of my top patrons and one of my oldest patrons. So thank you for all your support, Martin. Martin asks, Why are the left more willing to switch sides when they see themselves as slighted by their own? You didn't see Tommy Lahren running to the arms of liberals when Glenn Beck gave her the chop. Hmm, good question. Well... There's a couple of reasons for this, I think. One is that many of these so-called disillusioned leftists were not that left to begin with. There's a stigma around claiming that you're on the right or that you agree with some right-wing ideas, so many people just won't own it. It's weird because people who bitch about the left constantly and only the left still obviously think there's some cool factor to claiming you're on the left. I have come across so many dishonest and just cowardly crypto right-wingers in the atheist scene. Like, why not just be truthful? I'd have a lot more respect for that than I do this dishonesty. I'm no fan of Milo, but let me spend the next three weeks defending him. I'm no fan of Trump, but let me defend even his most asinine fine people on both sides comments, while I criticize leftists for even things like littering after the women's march, or the very obvious people who are bothered by criticism of Nazis, those who deny that sig-heiling, swastika-wearing shooters are Nazis, because Nazis apparently don't even exist anymore, and it's all just leftist hysteria. 
So, this underlying dishonest portrayal of oneself seems to be an easier way to publicly make that transition. Say you're just angry at the left, and then slowly, slowly expose just how right-wing your beliefs are, while being livid at anyone who so much as suggests you might have some right-wing sympathies. We see this a lot, eh? Then there's the double standards that the left and right are held to. Left-leaning, Mainstream media at least makes an effort to seem fair and unbiased, and if they slip up, they're heavily criticized for it. Right-wing media can pump out straight-up bullshit propaganda constantly, and people don't really expect much more than that from them. It would be hard to even keep track of how much BS they spout in a day. People joke about it and mock it, sure, but there's no real expectation that right-wing media should be making an effort to appear unbiased or professional even. So because of this, you end up hearing an exaggerated, excessive, and unfair amount of criticism of the left while the right gets off easy. And this can influence people's perception. And finally, the rewards in turning publicly from left to right are so great. Being an ex-leftist a la Rubin opens up so many right-wing doors for you. So many speaking engagements, appearances on right-wing media, and a lot of funding too. I don't think there are remotely as many rewards in being a right-wing person turning leftwards. The left is structured to have a lot more disadvantages in that way. Principles, ah, those darn things, really get in the way. I spoke about this briefly in my chat with David Pakman too. So, for example, the right is very willing to team up with people they fundamentally disagree with in significant ways. They'll be happy to use a gay person to spout their homophobic talking points. Or, as a more extreme example, take the alt-right. They too are happy to use people of color to advocate for a pure white ethnostate. It's absurd, but there it is. The left doesn't do that. In the Islam-critical skeptic scene in particular, we see the perfect example of this kind of thing. If you say the things the right wants to hear and are willing to look the other way from subtler forms of bigotry while exaggerating issues with the left, people's pockets open right up for you. Your Patreon swells. Large platforms open up to you. You get so much prominence, book deals. There are just so many incentives to shift right. While the left doesn't offer those incentives for people who speak out against the right, they expect people to do that from a place of basic decency anyway. So, to sum it up, I think there's three main reasons. Number one, people are dishonest about how left they start off. Number two, the double standards that the left and right are held to. Number three, the incentives. It's a really hard thing to resist, especially if you want to criticize Islam, because the left may not welcome you and you'll have to work for their trust. You'll get fewer platforms, lesser funding, less prominence. It's just so much quicker to make a name for yourself by advancing a right-wing agenda. If you're an Islam critic, take Majid Nawaz, for example. I don't think he started off in the Islam critical scene as someone who would go on Sargon of Akkad's show to promote himself and mock people as being LOL triggered for being rightly critical. He didn't start off as someone who would be fine touring with and legitimizing people who think Islam is worse than Nazism. I remember a time when he would even use terms like Islamophobia and call out bigotry in less obvious forms than he does now. But what happened? 
I don't know, really. It's a spreading sort of Rubenism, to be honest. Claim you're on the left, but are disillusioned by the left. Make a name for yourself by pandering to the right. And as the incentives for right-wing pandering grow, so does the number of people who shift. And if people would like that to change, please support content creators who recognize and oppose this sort of thing. And that concludes my long-winded answer to your question, Martin. Ian Bushfield asks, what's your daily life like? I'd be curious to hear if in your day-to-day interactions people assume you're Muslim or what your perspective on racism in Canada is at a personal level. Um, in my daily life, to be honest, no one ever thinks I'm of Muslim background unless I'm at a Pakistani extended family event, then they know, obviously even though there are rumors in the community that I worship Satan. (laughs) I'm not even joking about that, really. Uh, I mean, it's died down now, but when I was in uni, such rumors did actually exist. But boy, if you want to see awkward, you should see me at an extended family gathering. I stick out like a sore thumb, especially if it's a time my mom has convinced me to wear traditional clothes or something. It just feels so wrong on me, or maybe that's just how I feel internally, but I'm always wishing that the ground would open up and swallow me whole at those things so I don't have to make awkward small talk. My aunts will come up to me, the obvious weirdo, and be like, Aw, see? You look so nice in traditional Pakistani clothes. You should wear them more often. And I know they're just doing it to make me feel at ease, but it makes me feel even more conscious. But outside of family stuff, people can never really tell my background. I've gotten Italian, Greek, Mexican. Even though I'm pretty South Asian looking in my features, I guess their mind doesn't go there because of piercings and tattoos, pink or some other unnatural SJW colored hair. So usually this is how it goes. Someone gets to know me. Eventually we talk about how I'm an immigrant. They ask where I immigrated from, and I say, Saudi Arabia. And then I look forward to their inevitable what-the-fuck face. It's quite fun, actually. (laughs) They look so confused at that moment, and they're like, Are you you Muslim? (gasps) I usually say, by background, yeah, but not by belief. I'm non-religious. And then there's more confusion, because people associate being of Muslim background with the stereotypes you see in the media devout, hijabi, etc. So it's a satisfying feeling to sort of challenge the stereotype in my day-to-day life. One time um, in university, actually, gather round kids, this is a good story. I agreed to be a prop in my friend's marketing presentation, which was on stereotypes in advertising or something. And this was back in the day at the height of my goth phase, so I dressed pretty extreme, I'd say, on a daily basis. I think moving from Saudi Arabia to a place where I was free to express myself in any way I wanted resulted in me wanting to partake pretty heavily in a visually striking sort of subculture, something that was the extreme opposite to being made to wear a burqa by the state, my personal fuck you to morality police. It took a few years to get out of my system, to be honest, and uh, I don't think it's fully out even yet. But yeah, so I used to spike up my turquoise and purple hair into this crazy do, and we're talking like individual spikes were over a foot tall. 
Mm, it's a good thing I'm not too tall myself because I would have had issues getting through doorways. So yeah, I was usually adorned in fishnet corsets, knee-high platform boots, dog collars, spikes, and tons of black, of course. So... I agreed to wait outside the room as she gave the first part of her presentation and she was telling the class that she was going to bring someone in and she wanted them to visualize what I'd look like from details that she would tell them about me. That I'm a woman who grew up in Saudi Arabia, I dress in all black every day, and then she asked people to say what they think I might look like. And many said that I probably wear a burqa, I'm probably conservative, wear a black scarf over my head. And that was my cue to walk in with my dog collars and fishnet. And you could hear the collective gasp of the whole class and the professor too. It was hilarious, actually. People were like squealing and I did a short Q&A. It was fun. So yeah, people usually never assume I'm Muslim, even though I don't dress as hardcore at all anymore. As for my personal experiences with racism in Canada, uh... I've experienced a couple of things here and there, but overall I have to say I've been very fortunate to not encounter too much blatant racism on a regular basis, but it seems to have increased lately, to be honest, which is terrifying in light of things like the Quebec mosque shooting. I was with my parents a while ago in the car at a Tim Hortons, and some asshole yelled at them to go back to where they came from as he drove past. We were pretty shocked by the incident, and even something small like that can make you feel like shit for days, you know? I don't want to have to worry about my dad every time he goes to a mosque or something, but that fear is there. And also a friend of mine recently was telling me that his mom was spat at in a mall because she was speaking Hebrew. And that kind of thing was just unheard of in Toronto. And similarly, around 9-11, I felt racism and bigotry grow in Canada as well. Back then, a relative of mine was pushed on the subway. They shouted, move out of the way, you terrorist, at him. But um, aside from that, there's the usual hassle of traveling with a Muslim name. Jeez, you're always randomly selected for extra checks. And that's kind of a nightmare especially with men. Traveling with my dad, brother, or husband is a pain in the ass, to put it mildly. There was one time my old dad with a knee problem, who had already boarded the plane for fuck's sake, was asked to step off again and had his bags checked again. He was pretty upset about that, and there was really no reason for it, no explanation. I mean, just having a record of traveling to Saudi or Pakistan puts you under suspicion automatically, but all that said... I have to say that in Canada, it's a lot less than what I felt even on a short visit to the U.S. Especially since Trump's election, family, friends, and relatives have had horror stories of traveling to and from the U.S. So it's not as bad here, but it still feels too close to home. Okay, moving on. Gary Brooks asks, You get loads of Twitter lunatics being annoying and deal with stressful topics, so how do you relax, space out, calm down? Um, I'd say the mute button is a helpful thing, and other than that, I draw. I lose myself quite a bit when I draw. My husband gets mad at me for skipping meals and sleep, but when I'm really, really into a drawing, I can't stop. We were at the Art Gallery of Ontario recently and I showed him a write-up on a plaque about an artist, a real-life artist, who would lose himself in his work like that. And I was like, see, it's not just me. 
And also, I, I enjoy cooking, um, both alone and with my husband, too. So some wine, some music makes cooking dinner a very relaxing, Twitter-detoxing experience. A nice way to forget about death and rape threats that you've received throughout the day. I thank you for that question, Gary. It was nice and light and easy. I needed that. The next question is from Mary. She says, Hello, I grew up in an area with a very large Amish community. Amish women wear modest clothes and head coverings. Why do you think people focus on Muslim women in regard to modest dress, but not the Amish? This is a good question, one I get a lot, actually. So I think there's a few reasons for this. Firstly, I think Muslim women are scrutinized more for the simple reason that it is a foreign thing. They're an easy target for xenophobes and bigots. But also because it's more extreme, Amish head coverings are not nearly as extreme as some of the conservative Muslim ones from what I've seen. When it gets to the point of face covering, I think that that is just incredibly off-putting to many people, and rightfully so. It's pretty antisocial and makes basic human interaction harder than it needs to be. Not to mention the level of misogyny they're associated with is like extreme theocracy level stuff. Of course Amish women have it bad too, but the baggage around Islam is just at a different level. Then there's also the reason that Muslims are a much larger group than the Amish. Here in Toronto, for example, I've rarely come across Amish women, maybe like twice, whereas I've seen conservative Muslim women more times than I can count. To an extent, this depends on where you are, obviously, but generally speaking about large cosmopolitan cities in the West. Of course, this is no reason to harass them or bother them, but it's one explanation for why people are more fixated on them than Amish women, because they're more visible. And some of it is also pushed back against making Islamic modesty a praised symbol of diversity, as was done, for example, in the Shepherd Fairy poster of the woman in the U.S. flag hijab during the Women's March. Some people let the pendulum swing too far on that, of course, so instead of fair and reasonable critiques, you end up with frothing at the mouth, outrage at the mere sight of a hijab in the media. So while no one should be personally hassled or bothered for their modest dress, as much as we may disagree with it in principle, I don't think Amish modesty is something to romanticize or praise either. You see less pushback against it because you also don't really see the left championing them. And then there's also the fact that Islam is in the headlines every day. Things to do with Islam are heavily politicized. People have a lot of feelings about Islam, fair or unfair. Visibly Muslim women, I guess, serve as a reminder of all those feelings. And bear the brunt of it, unfortunately. They end up being targeted in some incredibly nasty ways, and this is why I try so hard to bring nuance to my criticism of the hijab. But people are looking for easy answers. Either every instance of a hijab in an ad is bad, or every instance of it is great and feminist, when in reality it's just not that cut and dry. Hope that clarifies things. Okay, next we hear from Bicho Marafado. What would your dream interview be, but only with living people? Ah, I had to think about this quite a lot, actually. So I've narrowed it down to three, and I'm going to start with Margaret Atwood. I haven't read Handmaid's Tale yet, but I intend to soon, and watching the show was a very intense experience for me. 
There are so many weird parallels to life under Sharia that I just love to talk to Margaret Atwood about that as an ex-Muslim. And also, I remember during the last Canadian election, we had this big controversy around the niqab, the face veil, where a woman refused to take it off in court for her citizenship ceremony. And it's an issue that I found myself completely at odds with the left on. Margaret was generally supportive of the woman who wanted the right to wear her niqab in court and was sharing articles that I disagreed with quite a bit, if I remember correctly. But when I tweeted a link to her, a blog post of mine with a different perspective from my experience as a woman who grew up in Saudi Arabia, she was very open-minded and even tweeted a link to my blog. So all of that stuff I'd love to discuss with her. I mean, it's odd to me that you can write something like The Handmaid's Tale and also be on the side of what boiled down to criticizing the niqab as bigoted. So, yeah. And another would be Malala. I would love to talk to her because she is a personal hero of mine, a Pakistani I'm so proud of. I'd love to hear more about her hopes and dreams for Pakistan, her plans for the future. I'd want to talk to her about how her horrendous, violent experience with religious extremism has motivated her to uh, sort of turn it into momentum to do so much good. I don't know if she'd discuss this, but I'd also like to hear from her how the awful hate she gets from conservative Pakistanis and the conspiracies that surround her, saying that she's a Western agent or whatever. Um, I'd like to hear how all that affects her. And the last one, I'm going to say Kumail Nanjiani from the show Silicon Valley and the movie Big Sick. I love him, honestly. He's another Pakistani that makes me very proud. He's such a great secular Muslim role model, too. Very, very funny. And he does not at all go that right-wing pandering route. He cares about racism and sexism. It is such a breath of fresh air that someone can be progressive in terms of being of Muslim background and also remain progressive in a Western context. It does not have to be one or the other, like we so often see in the ex-Muslim movement, unfortunately. So I think we'd have a lot to talk about. He follows me on Twitter and has responded to some of my tweets too, which is quite exciting. I would absolutely love to get him on my show sometime. A fangirl can dream, right? Okay. John Hammond asks, On a Sam Harris podcast with Fareed Zakaria, Fareed made a plea regarding the sensitivity of the majority of the world's 1.6 billion Muslims to criticism of their faith, arguing that they were born into the faith and as such it is an unquestioned aspect of their identity. While I agree that Islam needs criticism, I'm struggling with how we can address Fareed's concern. Or do we? Um, Islam absolutely needs criticism, but it needs to be done effectively for it to be heard. Especially right now in a Trump era in North America, discussing Islam is a pretty tricky subject. You have to take precautions so as not to empower the wrong kinds of people with your criticism. And if you want it to resonate and have impact on the ground where it's most needed, you have to walk that line carefully. I've been a non-believer for a long, long time, but I haven't really had a community to relate to on that disbelief for much of that time. So in that sense, finding Sam Harris long ago for me seemed like finally someone mainstreaming just how ridiculous religion is. Finally, I was able to find the words and the content that satisfied the frustration of having kept quiet all this time in this theist-majority world. Even though I wasn't a teenager at the time, 
this so-called new atheist content I was discovering sort of satisfied that angry teenager phase of my atheism. But as the political climate has shifted around us, I'm seeing that this vocal atheist ideology isn't shifting or evolving accordingly. It's still stuck on the same memes, the same focuses, with the same intensity, no matter that there are larger and larger numbers of far-riders latching onto the same sort of anti-Islam talking points. There's no shift in strategy. And this ultimately gives Islam criticism less credibility in the mainstream as people don't want to touch a topic that's empowering the far right with a 10-foot pole. And I don't think in the atheist movement enough precautions or pushbacks are being made towards the right and far right. In fact, anti-left, anti-SJW stuff is creating some strange bedfellows. So lately I haven't been really finding myself on the same page as Sam Harris on many topics. Islam is certainly the main one, but it's so much more than that too. You know, the SJWs on campus destroying free speech narrative, the left-caused Trump narrative, and on things like BLM and the Me Too movement as well. I find myself further and further away from Sam politically, so I don't really listen to his podcast anymore, to be honest, but I listened to this episode so I could address this question. And Farid is no hysterical far-left SJW. He, in fact, described himself as a classical liberal. I don't think he's familiar with the Rubens of the world tainting what that means. He actually said he was a right-winger in college, but even he talks in that episode very respectfully about how such critiques, like Sam's, are unhelpful and ahistorical and don't get at the richness of human experience, which is something I tend to agree with more and more now. I mean, Sam certainly captures the part that some on the left fail to acknowledge, you know, that ideology can indeed drive behavior and that is a big problem that needs to be acknowledged. But there's also more to it than that. It isn't so cut and dry. There are so many varied interpretations of Islam. Not all Muslims are even aware of the horrid verses and so on. There's a lot of illiteracy in poorer Muslim countries. Many don't even read scripture. They just memorize it. And also, many, many Muslims don't speak Arabic and so are taught to memorize verses that are quite meaningless to them, apart from they just know that this is what they need to be doing. I mean, I think to get to a point where Islam is watered down effectively in the way that Christianity has been in the West, I don't think that a reductionist view of it being irredeemable will get to as many people as a more nuanced critique would. And the alternative to that is not some horrible Reza Aslan-esque trying to shift the blame off of religion entirely type of thing. We don't have to go there either. The goal is not to protect people's feelings about their religion or respect Islam. The goal is to be convincing that you're not coming at this from a bad place so that more and more and more and more people, not just with the same politics as you, are open to listening to you. For example, championing open anti-immigrants like Douglas Murray is probably not a good look or supporting Rubin, that kind of thing, you know? Fareed explains to Sam that deeming Islam irredeemably violent is something that won't resonate with Muslims and will instead feed a sense of exclusion, marginalization, and feed hatred and will do something profoundly unhelpful on the ground, which is so true in my opinion. This is why I find the anti-reform ex-Muslims so unhelpful as well. If you deem it irredeemable, what are the options left? Where's the hope, the call to action, and where do you go from there? 
To be fair, though, Sam has been supportive of reform and has said it's not realistic to think you can deconvert everyone. But the general talk around Islam in his circles very much gives the idea that it is irredeemable. And that just gets people's backs up, causes them to dig their heels in even further. When I think we could be making allies out of progressive Muslims and not just Majid and Asra types of progressive Muslims, who are sort of soft on the Western right, if not openly voting for Trump, this is not how we declaw an orthodox ideology, in my view. I do think now that movement atheism has missed the mark on this altogether. Tim also goes on to talk about how the left fails lionizing people like Linda Sarsour, which is absolutely fair, I think. However, there's no introspection on how movement atheism props up harmful people like Jordan Peterson, Rubin, ex-Muslims who proudly proclaim Islam and Judaism are worse than Nazism, reformers who support Trump, Gad Saad, the list of terrible associations within movement atheism and with Sam himself is quite extensive. So I don't think there's any moral high ground left to keep going on about how the left is bad for doing this and not examining things closer to home. So to wrap up your question, I do think we can address Farid's concerns better with nuance and care in our discussions, especially in such a political climate with hate crimes on the rise. I don't necessarily agree with Farid on the unquestioned part of their identity thing. Religious identity I don't think should be under any sort of protection. But strategically, what's the best way to get through? That's what I'm more interested in. I think the right notes aren't being hit to have the most productive and effective conversations on Islam. Instead, the wrong people are being propped up. Gaining credibility in the mainstream to have this conversation is important. That involves not allying with people that are generally hostile to Muslims or those who are Trump supporters or anti-immigrant or those who talk about fears of white Britons becoming a minority. I've had an extensive conversation with Sam himself on my podcast last year, very much trying to show how these things are concerning. Even though it was a friendly conversation and we chatted a lot about it, I'm not sure I got through because after I gave very specific examples to Sam about why someone like Ruben is a problem to associate with, Sam started supporting him on Patreon. And that's one thing I've seen even his diehard fans get disillusioned with him over. And a few months before our chat, I wrote him an open letter on my blog trying to convince him that for effective Islam criticism, one must distinguish their views from someone like Douglas Murray and not champion them. But since then, Douglas has been on his show numerous times, and he's posted some very strange Douglas Murray articles on Twitter, praised him, um, so I don't know. I've, I've tried my best, and I'd be happy to chat with Sam again, but I just find myself further and further away from him politically which has kind of been sad, really. But yeah, I hope that answers your question. Okay, AJGS says, this is sort of an add-on to John Hammond's good question. Do you have any suggestions on how never-Muslims, specifically never-Muslims of limited finances, can support or help ex-Muslims? Well, never-Muslims can support ex-Muslims by finding responsible ex-Muslim voices that you can get behind sharing their content and supporting their work, not necessarily financially, but vocally. It's important, though, to not blindly support someone simply because they're ex-Muslim. Be careful of fetishizing ex-Muslims. It's something that I tend to come across a lot in the skeptosphere, and as an ex-Muslim, it makes me feel kind of icky. 
there's a lot more to us than just having left Islam. It's sort of putting up on a pedestal and in a narrow glass box anyone who had the sense to leave Islam. It does not necessarily mean they are sensible otherwise. Ex-Muslims are pretty politically diverse, ranging from secular, left-leaning humanists to far-righters who have joined hands with some troubling hate groups. There are so many irresponsible ex-Muslim voices actively harming the conversation around Islam. People who appear on Breitbart, people who support Trump, people who align with terrible misogynists and anti-feminists. These people are seen as reasonable and rational voices just because they are ex-Muslim. So when deciding who to support, hopefully you can pay attention to things like their politics outside of Islam. All right, desperately trying to build our robot overlords asks, what is your dream career slash role in the world? You're an illustrator, blogger, and podcaster. Would you like to be able to focus in on one of those, or is it something else? Oh, this is such a fun question. Thank you. Actually, the ultimate dream would be to combine some of my skills into, like, multimedia art shows with some audio and visual art. That would be so much fun for me, something I've fantasized about quite a bit. But I'm not quite sure how to even go about making that happen, really. Maybe someday. I've had a couple of art shows under my actual name, but I think doing it under my anonymous persona would be even more fun as an artist. Maybe I could attend and no one would know it was me. A few years ago, I had a piece of art go viral in Pakistan and it got picked up by some big names. It was appearing on TV, in the papers, draped on monuments. It was kind of fun to see my art all over the place in a city I once used to live and no one knew it was by me except for my parents. And that was kind of exciting. Secret identity art is fun. Another question from Ian. What do you think of reasonable accommodations in Canada? Not the right-wing caricature, but the general practice of allowing people space to practice their faith, where it doesn't meaningfully impact on the rights of others. For example, a student being let out of class briefly for a prayer, or someone getting an exemption from a condo board rule to erect a religious structure. Is the alternative one law for all approach realistic or does it further push minority faith groups underground? Um, I think in terms of reasonable accommodations, it's very important for the request for accommodations to actually be reasonable. And I know that the right wing caricatures this a lot of the time and makes a big deal out of nothing a lot of the time. But for example, the whole niqab in citizenship court thing I thought was not reasonable at all. It is not unreasonable for you to be expected to show your face in a courtroom. It's a courtroom. They're not like asking you to strip down naked. It's just your face, just in this one specific situation. I think it's rather unreasonable to not make that accommodation yourself. Um, As for prayer in school, I don't love the idea of prayer in school, but I don't think it's something to have a hissy fit over. If someone excuses themselves for 10 minutes for a private prayer is whatever. But what I'd have more of an issue with is I have a friend that's a teacher and she was telling me that the Muslim kids would all pray together and the girls would automatically stand in the back because, well, women religiously aren't allowed to be in the front. And I think that kind of women in the back thing to happen in schools is a real problem for me. So I don't know, maybe I'm a hard ass on this. (laughs) But another example is like PE, you know, in school, 
uh, our PE uniform was black shorts and a school t-shirt. But girls from religious families asked to be allowed to wear sweatpants instead of shorts. And I don't think that's a problem or a big deal. It's not harming anyone else, you know. But should religious parents be allowed to exempt their kids from sex ed class, though? I don't think so. It's the kids who end up suffering the most. So I'd say it really depends on the case. And sometimes it's the right making a big deal out of nothing. But sometimes it really is not a reasonable ask. So case-by-case basis, I suppose. All right, next question. Chris asks... What are your feelings on Imam of Peace, also known as Imam Tohidi's recent plea for money due to security concerns? I can't decide if he's a con or genuine or both. His voice has been amplified by some I respect and some I don't. Can't decide if his voice is helpful or detrimental. Um, Imam of Peace is a total sham, as far as I'm concerned. It's embarrassing some of the supposed rational thinkers in our movement have supported, promoted, and signal-boosted him, even going as far as saying he's refreshing, and why aren't most imams like this? This is what gives a lot of people the idea that he's worth listening to, even when it's quite obvious and increasingly so that an anti-Muslim, critical of his own scripture imam, is not likely to be legit. He does nothing but pander to the far right. Now, granted, this question was asked weeks and weeks and weeks ago, so it may have been less obvious then, but by now he's made appearances with white nationalists on their podcast to serve their narratives. He's lamented with Tommy Robinson that he's lost respect for London as a city because its mayor isn't a white man who knows the values and instead is a man of Pakistani descent. You name a right-wing bullshit cause and he's there. As I record this, he's going after a Parkland school shooting survivor, saying that his opposition to the NRA is misguided because he needs to apparently focus his criticism on Hillary and Obama. Democrats, surprise, surprise, who the imam says have sent guns to ISIS. I mean, fucking hell, dude. How many ways is this wrong in? I'm not even going to get into it all. But the basic thing here is this kid just survived a mass murder in his school. ISIS wasn't the one that did it. This is insensitive whataboutery and conspiracy bullshit at its worst. I have to say, though, that Imam of Peace is a good litmus test for what commentator has a sensible outlook on Islam and isn't completely ideologically blinded to the point of considering an anti-Muslim imam plausible. So I hope that helps. Moving on, Robert L. asks, What do you think is spreading this new center bullshit? Is it just a silly reaction to a lost election or... Just a bunch of right-wing nuts finally coming out of the closet, and many getting paid for it. Many seem to be panicking because the quote-unquote new atheist movement, or whatever it's called these days, seems to be fracturing. Personally, I think it's just a matter of numbers. There are so many more of us today than 10 years ago that we get all kinds, and that's it. But perhaps you have a different opinion. I do have a different opinion, actually. I wish it was just about numbers. And to an extent, of course it is. The more people any movement 
contains, the more likely they are to be all over the political spectrum and the more right-wingers you'll get. But what troubles me is the leaders and most prominent voices in the skeptic atheist movement are not at all ideologically diverse. If they were, then I'd say it's just about numbers and every group has its say-holes. But... We're seeing that the more reactionary and right-wing voices in this movement, the more success it seems to have. The most prominent ones usually spout the same anti-left talking points. They join arms with and hold live events with some really dangerous people. They prop up bad right-wing ideas time and time again. So I think in this Trumpian climate, maybe it's just more obvious that these are not simply people on the left with genuine internal disagreements with fellow people on the left. But these are people happy to prop up the obvious right-wingers taking advantage of their criticisms of the left and left-leaning causes with very little desire to distance themselves or to prevent the right from hijacking their talking points. It's that spreading Rubenism again. It seems to be a recipe for financial success and prominence. If you don't mind who your bedfellows are or that your claimed principles don't at all match up with your actions, it seems it's very beneficial to join the new center, which isn't center at all, just a politically correct euphemism for right-wingers who aren't ready to admit that they are right-wingers. Otherwise, I don't know why the reaction to a rising far right would be to turn rightwards, to be honest. The only thing that makes a little sense is that prominence is intoxicating as is financial power or solidarity with the ideas of the right. I can't see why else people would join it. I mean, just look at how many articles are written about Peterson in a day, how dedicated his cult following is, how far-reaching his Patreon is. It puts other cult followings to shame. I think... Maybe other prominent figures see that and they want a piece of it. And partly, I think they were always more right-wing than they let on. So, yeah, those are my thoughts on the so-called new center. Thomas asks, Have your feelings about religion changed at all now that new atheism has become quasi-religious? I feel more kinship with liberal Christians, Muslims, Jews, and Hindus, other faiths too, of course, than I do with right-wing atheists. Does this mean everything has just been hyper-politicized? Is it Trump's fault? Even if it's not, can I blame him anyway? <laughs> yes. The recent trends in movement atheism especially since Trump has come into power, have really given me pause and perspective. They haven't really changed my views on religion in the sense that I think religion is good now, or that I think atheism, as in a disbelief in God, is a bad thing now. Not like that. But I used to think that critics of new atheism were people that were just shitting on more vocal atheists, which I thought was really unfair. But now I think that Movement atheism's overlap with right-wing talking points and figures is undeniable. I used to think calling it a right-wing movement was just a silencing tactic, but it's hard to ignore that there is a very clear ideology in movement atheism, and you're shunned if you step out of line. It's not just about atheism. There's so much else being smuggled in with it. Ironically, those who strongly oppose the idea of atheism plus seem to have embraced a form of atheism that comes with a whole lot more than disbelief in God, including anti-immigrant sentiment, anti-feminism, anti-diversity, anti-BLM, etc. <laughs> Let's call it atheism minus. 
It's so consistent across the board, too. So, yeah, I would much rather be surrounded by progressive and respectful theists than I would with right-wing atheists who are more outraged at someone calling Tommy Robinson racist than Tommy Robinson retweeting white rights accounts or appearing on violence-advocating neo-Nazi podcasts. It shows that even though religion is a major problem, a lot of problems exist even without it. I started questioning religion because of the bigotry I saw within it. And it's been a huge blow to see patterns and trends of immense bigotry and sexism and movement atheism too. Just look at how the Kraus thing has been handled or how myself and some others have been labeled extremists for being critical of some atheist responses. It goes to show that it's not quite as simple as religion, bad no religion, good. So yeah, Thomas, I completely agree. I too feel more of a kinship with left-leaning theists than I do with right-leaning atheists. At Toxic Path asks, how do we fix atheism and skepticism so it's not susceptible to right-wing propaganda? Hmm. I would adjust the wording here to say movement atheism rather than atheism. The problem isn't with a lack of belief in God, but rather how and where the figureheads of the movement have led it, the people they choose to normalize and ally with, the views they choose to share on their very large platforms. Many of those actions are incredibly irresponsible, in my opinion. In order to have protected movement atheism from getting infiltrated by far-right voices, they should have criticized the right along with Islam. Not just a few token criticisms of the most obvious stuff, but I mean, make it a routine double-pronged thing when you criticize Islam or even feminism. You have to actively deter the far-right from latching on. They didn't do that. They encouraged it even. And so here we are. We continue to slip further and further right. I mean, you couldn't write a parody like this to discredit atheists. What can we do now that we are here? I guess people that oppose this bullshit need to be very vocally opposed to it. Stop enabling it by supporting content creators that feed into this. Take note of who's okay going on Rebel Media, who's sharing Breitbart, who's fine with Ruben, and distance yourself. And I think acknowledging that there's a problem in movement atheism goes a long way in terms of actually fixing it. A lot of people are not ready to acknowledge there's any issue at all specific to this community, so they make excuses. If we could stop making excuses, that'd be a huge step forward. Recognize that criticism of Islam and Judaism are entry points for anti-Muslims and anti-Semites. Such criticism happens in the atheist scene a lot, so that's how we end up with a bigot and Nazi apologetics problem. A problem where things like the Jewish question are surfacing again as if it were a legitimate question at all. I think shifting the tone of discussion according to the political climate is so important. Many people don't realize that. I mean, I really dislike Christianity, and if I'm in a conservative Muslim environment, if I was in Pakistan for example, my views on Christianity wouldn't change, but I'd probably refrain from joining right-wing Muslims to bash Christianity. Similarly, if you harp on about Islam in an increasingly anti-Muslim environment, you're going to be welcoming some sinister characters that aren't there for the right reasons or for secular reasons at all. 
And this will happen especially when there's little to no pushback against the right. Let's take Dawkins. He isn't even one of the worst people for this sort of thing, but just the other day I saw his words being used on foxnews.com because of a tweet he put out that the right clearly loved. Coupled with all his anti-Islam stuff, it's like catnip. He tweeted something about how people shouldn't celebrate the decline of Christianity in Europe because it might be a bulwark against something worse. Wonder what that could be. And he called Christianity relatively benign. I mean, just ask the women of Ireland how benign they think Christianity has been over there. Now, leading vocal atheists are warning against celebrating the decline of Christianity and then shitting on Islam? Of course, of course the right will pick up on that dog whistle. I saw the Atheist Republic account share a video of two ex-Muslims turned Christian bashing Islam. I mean, this isn't a good idea, (laughs) because they are so obviously biased and pushing their own agenda. It seems the bar for people who criticize Islam is so low that we'll let anyone in and embrace them. So if you see that kind of stuff, call it out or distance yourself or support people who don't engage in that kind of stuff. And that's really all I can suggest in hopes that we can improve this movement someday. Jean-Marc asks, what is your take on MRAs? Do they raise valid points often ignored or are they all really as bad as they are often portrayed? Nope, 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 nope. MRAs raise about as many valid points as any other group standing for the rights of one already in power. So they're as legitimate as white rights groups in the West or Sunni rights groups in Pakistan, which is not at all in my opinion. There are, of course, issues that affect men and should be looked at, but MRAs are busier spreading hate and undermining feminists than actually being concerned and campaigning for the rights of men. In fact, I see more feminists covering those issues than I do MRAs. My friend, at Classical Liberal, ironic Twitter handle, of course, put it best when he tweeted, We're men's rights activists. We care about issues that affect men. Cool, what kind of issues? Male homelessness is one. Oh, so you do activism to help the homeless? Haha, <laughs> God no, we look for female rape victims online and tell them homeless men have it bad too. Jeremiah Traeger asks, Do you realize how much money you could get from selling out, not only as an ex-lefty, but also as a Middle Easterner? It would be worse than Gad Sad. (laughs) Number one, why is this such a compelling narrative, and is there anything we could do to combat this token narrative? Number two, if slash when you do sell out, will us current patrons get anything out of it? (laughs) Well, the token narrative has been around for ages. I'm not sure what we can do to combat it other than keep pointing it out, keep trying to convince people not to fall for that bullshit. And I mean, it's compelling because bigoted people find it very effective to use those from minority groups to spout hateful talking points against those groups. They feel the points are more easily seen as legitimate if coming from an anti-Muslim Muslim, an anti-trans trans woman, a woman who is in support of strict gender roles and hates feminism, a gay guy that says he would rather be straight, a black guy who says black people are responsible for slavery. Yes, an actual person said that. And he was, of course, a guest on the Rubin Report. 
He didn't say it on there, but that was another video that he did. And if he had said it on there, I wonder how much pushback he'd receive. But you know, Ruben hates identity politics until he can use it to his advantage. Then it's all about how his guest is a black conservative or how he's a gay married man. Did you know he was a gay married man? He's so subtle with that point. It's really, it's hard to tell. They also like these views coming from token personalities because they can shield themselves from accusations of bigotry so easily. I'm not a transphobe. See? Here's my favorite trans commentator who just happens to echo all my points. Surely you can't think this trans woman is saying transphobic things herself. Why, that would be absurd. Ha <laughs> ha. This is why people like ex-Muslims who serve the Rubin slash Breitbart narrative. As depressing as it is for me, this has become one of the most popular tactics on the right in 2017 and 2018. And that's why we see intersectionality on the most extreme end on the alt-right too. Whoever is willing to promote their white nationalist talking points, they will embrace. For now at least. This is why we saw Tila Tequila welcomed by the alt-right with open arms. And this is also why saying things like, oh, I don't know how alt-right Milo can be because he's so gay and flamboyant, is pretty naive or ignorant about how the current far-right works. Now, to answer part two of your question, if or when I sell out, will my patrons get anything? Oh, yeah, of course. I'll print you guys some t-shirts that say, the last liberal on them. <laughs> Vladimir Alexandrov asks, Are there any conservatives that you recently gained respect for after the election of Trump? By respect, I don't necessarily mean agreeing with their ideology, but the honesty of their character in dealing with Trump and the insanity of what is going on. Yeah, you know what? I do have a certain respect for some anti-Trump right-wingers. They not only criticize Trump, but they criticize the right for how it's been acting in this time. They criticize Fox News, and I... Appreciate seeing that on the right. It's so rare. I'm more than happy to retweet anti-Trump right-wingers to show that even they aren't buying this BS. This doesn't mean I agree with any of their politics, but I'm happy to put that aside for an anti-Trump retweet. I've retweeted David Frum a few times, and honestly, the response he got from Rubin's audience alone calling him a regressive SJW definitely earned him some respect in my books. Then I've seen some tweets from Bill Kristol that seem far more liberal than anything our atheist leaders would say these days, sadly. Like when Bill tweeted, The GOP tax bill's bringing out my inner socialist. The sex scandals are bringing out my inner feminist. Donald Trump and Roy Moore are bringing out my inner liberal. What is happening? Yeah, I can't, I can't picture our atheist leaders saying stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely some respect there. All right, and now for the last question, which is a fun would-you-rather question sent in by my pal Dylan Beck. So Dylan asks, Would you rather go to a basketball game with Dave Rubin or do a therapy session with Jordan Peterson as your psychologist? <laughs> <laughs> Dylan's asking this because he knows how much I hate basketball and how my husband's always watching it. But 
Between the two choices, I'd say the answer is easy. I'll take a basketball game with Ruben any day rather than allow a lunatic like Peterson to mess with my head. Giving Peterson power over me in that way sounds scary as hell. I mean, maybe he'd just cry about the movie Frozen in our session, so who knows, and I'd have a good laugh. But I would not take that chance. I'd much rather go watch basketball with Ruben. Maybe I could finally ask him all those questions I've wanted to, like, when will you hold Trump's feet to the fire, Dave? (laughs) So, yeah, that was a fun one. Anyway, now I am finally done with this. My apologies for it taking so long. I had to take a break in the middle to cover the unpleasant crowd stuff. But if you enjoyed this and are not a patron, please consider becoming one so you can support the show and also you can participate in the next AMA. I'm going to try and do that when I hit the goal of 250 patrons, which at this rate may actually never happen. But you, dear listener, can help make it happen and speed that process along. Anywho, thanks for listening, everyone, and bye for now. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal, nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no E in mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too. A special thanks to Dylan Beck for theme music, sound, and production help. (music) 